If I have not met you yet, my name is Ross. I get to serve here as family pastor, and it's uh, good to sing that gospel with you guys uh, together this morning. We're going to continue our series through the book of John this morning. So if you have a copy of Scripture, uh, open with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And we're going to jump in pretty quick and read the first verse here right after I, I, I pray. We're going to read the first verse and, uh, and, and jump in. But we're going to cover uh, uh, all the way through verse 30. So John chapter 13, verse uh, 1 through 30. And we're looking at uh, what it means that to be loved completely. Loved completely. Let me pray for us, for our time in, in God's word. Uh, and then we'll, we'll dive in. <clears throat> Father, uh, It's finished. Our redemption has been accomplished. So, so, Lord, in light of that gospel, in light of that truth of what your death and your resurrection has secured for us, uh, let, us uh, let us now uh, be transformed by your word. Uh, we, we need the, the power of your spirit, the presence of your spirit with us as we, as we study uh, your word, um, because we are looking to your word for life, for true life. So would you grant that to us? Uh, uh, would you grant that to us now? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so John chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, read, read with me. This is how, uh, uh, this is how the, the chapter uh, introduces. <clears throat> Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world... He loved them to the end. Having loved, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now this verse marks the beginning of really, in a lot of ways, of the second half or the second uh, part of John's gospel. So you could, uh, one way to think about John's gospel is to think of it in, in two parts. We have chapters 1 through 12, uh, the first half, uh, what we've just finished uh, uh, what we just finished covering, is God's love has been introduced. So Jesus comes on the state, uh, into the, onto the scene like light into darkness, and uh, uh, he comes demonstrating God's love through miracles, and then explaining, expounding as, as people are attracted to his miracles. Uh, we, and, all, and people respond, all different types of people respond to this message, the message that Jesus is bringing in, in all sorts of variety of different ways. But then now as we turn the corner, it's really like, you know, the lights dim, the dramatic music starts to build a little bit in, in, uh, as we turn the corner into John chapter 13. And, and he introduces this, uh, the, this section is going to carry us all the way from Jesus' final night with his disciples in, a, in, in the upper room uh, this, as they're celebrating this Passover festival that we just, that we just read about, uh, all the way up through his, his death and his resurrection. And one of the major themes in this second half of the book of John is this idea that God's work in Christ is being accomplished. It's being finished. It's being brought to completion. And so that idea comes up multiple times, but we see it right here in this opening verse that we just, that we just read for us. It says, he loved them to the end. As the, that's how the CSB that I read uh, translates it. The, the NIV says, he loved them to the uttermost. Uh, and that the... the um, uh, the, the, the Greek word there is, is, is telos, uh, and it, it has a, a broad, broad range of meaning. It can mean the idea of completion, of bringing brought to mature perfection, something being finished, or the full, full extent of something. Uh, and, um, 
and, and so in, in a lot of ways, uh, it kind of communicates both Jesus is loving his disciples. What we're going to see in the second half of the book of John is that Jesus loves his disciples right up to the very end. He is unwavering and unflinching in his love for his disciples. But also, his love for his disciples is uh, full and deep. There is nothing more to add. That's why the song that we just, just sung, it is finished, our redemption has been accomplished. Uh, there are no question marks about the, around the sufficiency of what Jesus has done. He has completed the mission and poured out his love to its full extent. And significantly, this word comes up again right at the very end of the, of, of the gospel. It comes up many times, but, but one important one is Jesus' final moment. Literally, literally, literally his final moment uh, alive. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, It is finished. That's the same word, telos, telestai, and it's a, just a different form of, this, of the same root word. Uh, and and then, then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And so here's how I want us, to, here's how I think we can summarize this, the, the importance of this word, this concept that Jesus' love is complete and accomplished and finished. During the final hours of his life, and the, the, the final hours of his life start in John chapter 13. That's something that we don't often think about. Is we still got eight chapters left, but there's only, I mean, it, this is the last 24 hours of Jesus' life that's covered in eight chapters. So there's a lot, a lot of stuff happens in just, just a little bit of, uh, or in a lot of stuff happens in a little bit of time uh, that's recorded in eight chapters. And so during the final hours of Jesus' life, Jesus was a determined to accomplish the very best for his people, regardless of the cost. And that's, that's a helpful way. I had a conversation last week with somebody about what, what is like, how, did, how do you define what love is? Love is doing the best we know how to do for someone else. And that is what Jesus, that is what Jesus uh, does here. At the end of his life, he was determined to, to accomplish, to secure the very best for you and me, regardless of what it would cost him. Last week, my, uh, my family and I were, this, this last week, my family and I were sick. Uh, and uh, so I, uh, you know, spent a lot of time, uh, you know, curled up, laying on the bed, and, you know, pain, aches and pains. It wasn't a man cold, I promise you. It was, it was, a, real, it was a real sickness. And, uh, and, uh, but what I noticed is that, uh, I was, or I was reminded of, of this fact that when you're sick, when there's like aches and pains and you're, you know, you're blowing your nose and, and you know, you just wake up. You know, the first morning that you wake up when you're sick, it's like, oh, crap. Like, it's, it's hit me. Like, this is, is going to be, you know, weeks of misery or, you know, days of misery. Uh, but when, when the, the pain and the anxiety of, of a sickness like that come, comes on you, it's very easy, almost immediately, almost instinctively, uh, we lose perspective on anything else. All I can think about is making myself feel better. All of a sudden, when I'm laying on the, on the couch, achy and cranky, I lose all motivation to do anything nice for Monica. I, 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 any, whatever ounce of me that does want to serve her, like, sacrificially, like, it's out, it's out the window. All I can think about is what, what I can do to make myself less uncomfortable. Uh, same thing with my kids. Like, my kids are, they, they still demand attention and time and, you know, they require things, but all of the motivation to, to serve someone else goes out the window when you're sick, right? The blinders go up when, when pain or anxiety or sickness comes in our life. Uh, uh, the blinders go up. We get, we adopt super hyper tunnel vision, and we become, become self-focused. When we, when we feel pain, we could care less about doing what's best for others. Uh, all we can think about is our own problem. Uh, but as we 
meditate on these last hours of Jesus' life, what's striking to me is that this is the exact opposite. Uh, the, the exact opposite thing happens for Jesus. At the exact moment when his pain and his anxiety and the trauma and all the, 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 uh, all the pain that he was experiencing increased uh, exponentially, his love for his people, his love for his disciples, his love for you and I increased and abounded and became even more mature and fulfilled. He was determined to act for our good and accomplish the very best for you and me. And we're going to look at, at, at this love uh, of Jesus, this full, complete, mature love of Jesus that he has. And we're going to see two things. Firstly, we're going to see that we need to receive this love. And then secondly, uh, we need to respond to this love. Okay? So firstly, we must receive Jesus' love. Let's keep reading. Pick up again in verse 2 with me. Uh, and we're going to see his love is uh, symbolized. This love is symbolized with a visible, visible tangible expression of love. So, verse 2, it says, Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. That's a very foreboding detail. We'll come back to that at the end. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and dry them with a towel Around, tied, that was tied around him. Now, as we read this, this, uh, this act of Jesus, it's really easy for us to gloss over or miss just how abrasive and even repulsive Jesus' actions are, are here. You notice John goes into detail about his clothing. What's up with that? He's taking off his clothes and he's putting on a towel. That's significant because he's putting on the, 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 the uniform of a slave of the lowest member, of the lowest caste of society, Jesus, this master, this Messiah, this, this people that these disciples are willing to lose everything for and have been following for the last three years, this guy's becoming their slave, okay? That's, a, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's confusing to, to them. And, uh, and that's significant not only because he's, uh, uh, because he's, uh, becoming a slave, but even worse than that, there's a lot of Jewish traditions, like in the Midrashes, which are like commentaries on the law and stuff like that. Um, this, this, this act, the act of washing someone's feet, is, was, you couldn't even require your Jewish slave to do that. So a Jewish, it was too low for even a Jewish slave to do. It was reserved only for females and for Gentile slaves. Like, it was the, the, in that culture, like the lowest of the low people were allowed to do this, Okay. Uh, we're, we're allowed to do this. So this was sh so shameful. J Jesus is the, doing the, the equivalent of someone, you invite someone over for dinner, and the first thing they do is they walk into your bathroom and they see that your toilet, it's been a while since your toilet's been cleaned, so they pull a toothbrush out of their pocket and a bottle of bleach, and they get down on their hands and knees and they stick their hands in your dirty toilet and start scrubbing with a toothbrush, right? That's the equivalent of the offensiveness of, of, what, of what Jesus uh, is doing here. And the disciples don't know how to respond. And so, um, uh, uh, and that leads us to, to, to the next section. So verses, look down with me to verses 6 through, six through 11. We're going to see Peter's kind of, in, in the awkwardness of the moment, Peter responds with two inappropriate, two mistaken reflexes, okay? Um, 
to Peter's mistaken reflexes. Let's read in verse 6. He says, he came to Simon Peter. So he's going around the, the room and washing everybody's, everybody's feet. And he came to Simon Peter. And good old Peter, he, uh, he's always quick to speak. He says, he, he asked them, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Uh, Jesus answered him, what I'm, doing, uh, what I'm doing, you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You're clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. That is why he said not all of you are clean. So he ends there with another foreboding uh, uh, detail about what's to come. So Peter responds to this, to Jesus' act of humiliating humble love in, in two extreme ways. And I want us to reflect on both of Peter's reactions here. Just pause for a minute and reflect because in Peter's, uh, uh, in Peter's reaction, what he's doing, at the heart of what he's doing is he is distancing himself from Jesus' love, right? In both of, these, both of these reactions that we're going to look at, he's demonstrating that, that he doesn't really know, and none of us really do, he doesn't really know how to receive Jesus' love. He doesn't really know how to embrace Jesus' very best for him. And Peter's ignorance tells us a lot about ourselves. So he starts by just flat out rejecting Peter. Uh, or Peter starts by flat out rejecting Jesus. And Peter says, you're never going to wash my feet. You can, you can almost imagine and feel like Jesus, Peter is like scooting away from Jesus as he's doing. He's physically distancing himself. And you can imagine how you'd respond if somebody's scrubbing your toilet with a toothbrush, right? What would you do? You'd probably grab them up by the, by the shoulders and say, stop, don't do that. That's making me way too uncomfortable. Somebody else can do that. You shouldn't be doing that, right? Uh, to have your feet washed or to have your toilet cleaned is, by someone, is, it's, it's something we want to distance ourselves from because it's incredibly exposing, isn't it? It's, it this, the person that's doing the cleaning is going to get very familiar with the filthiest parts of you. The filth you'd probably rather pretend wasn't even there in the first place, right? It, so it's awkwardly and abrasively exposing. And, Jesus, and Peter's initial response here tells us a valuable lesson that... Um, that we fail to receive Christ's love when we underestimate the filth of our sin. We fail, you and I will always fail to receive Christ's love as long as we're un underestimating the true filth of our sin. Jesus, and and what I, here's what I mean by that. Jesus, look at Jesus' response. Jesus, it's short, but it's piercing. He says, if I don't wash you, if I don't expose and cleanse the filthiest parts of you, then you have no share, then you have no part with me. And what Jesus is symbolically inviting Peter into and what he's inviting you into this morning is this. If you want to really know, if you want to really experience and really feel and enjoy the full love of God that the Father has designed you to live out of and experience life out of, if you want to know that, then it begins by laying everything bare before him. And by coming under the cleansing, exposing, purifying fount that is Jesus' love for you. Your sin cannot be managed. It's not going to be covered up. It can't be glossed over or downplayed. The only cure for your sin, whether it's big or whether it's small, is the cross of Christ. And laying it bare before him uh, in, an, in an exposing way. And in that way, that is the only way to embrace Jesus' best for you.
Okay, so that's the first of Jesus' response. The second is this. Peter's, uh, Peter fails to receive Christ's love um, by underestimating the power of his cleansing. So on the one hand, his ignorance is arrogance. It, 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 he fails to receive Christ's love because he doesn't want to be exposed. But also, his second response shows us that his, his, uh, his, um, his ignorance stems from an insecurity, which is a pride, as Justin likes to, to point out, it's a pride in itself. And, 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 we, and we fail to receive Christ's love when we underestimate the power of his cleansing. So Peter says, okay, if that's the case, if I have to be cleansed to, to have a part with you, then wash all of me, not just my feet. But Jesus says, Jesus kind of corrects that extreme response too. He says, no, you've, you're already bathed. What you need is just your feet washed. And remember what foot washing was. Foot washing was in that culture a regularly repeated act of maintenance. So everybody walked around in dirty, dusty roads, wearing sandals. And so you walk into, a, into your house, your feet's going to be dirty. And there's probably animal feces on it too, you know. Like it's, it's a very dirty Thing. And so you go into someone's house or you celebrate a meal, you know, you have a special meal. You're going to, it's, it's a regular thing that you do repeated and, and repeated uh, ways. And so, um, um, and, and this, I think, speaks to a, a deeper reality. Jesus is, 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 what Jesus is saying in this conversation with Peter is sin is a lot like the dust of a dirt road, right? Because of our depravity, sin is inevitable. We are going to get dirty. And so, uh, and so, as a Christian, the Christian life is one of repeated and regular maintenance. This is the, this is the cycle of the Christian life that we we recognize our sin, we we confess, we receive cleansing through the through the unending grace that He offers, and we endeavor to turn from sin, and we do it over and over and over and over again. Peter, Jesus is saying, Peter, you need this cleansing. You need constant, re- renewed maintenance cleansing, and we do so because of the promise. A promise that's it's not going to be on the screen, but First uh, John one nine, that uh, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. He will forgive us, and then He will cleanse us. That's the same word that's used here to talk about the foot washing. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's the pattern of the Christian life as a repeated cycle of, of, of cleansing. But what Jesus desperately wants Peter to know is that this need for required maintenance never in the slightest bit calls into question our ultimate status. And that is because this act of slave labor that Jesus is doing ultimately is only a a small picture of the slave-like death that he was going to die for Peter in just a few chapters, and just a few hours. And so what Jesus is saying is, if you're with me, if you identify with me in my death, if you rely on my perfect death in your place, then you are totally washed. If the fount of my love flows over us, like there's no question about whether we are clean or not. He says in, in chapter 50, he says, you're already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. That is, trusting in the gospel message that Jesus' death covered over all the filth and the dirt and the blemishes that you bring to the table, trusting in what that gospel has accomplished for you, purifies you completely and eternally. And this is a game changer for us because I don't know about you, but like I probably accepted Jesus into my heart like 25, 30 times. I, I lost, lost, lost track. Like it's just like there, there's this something about like this constant anxiety of every time I sin, it's like it's worse than the, the time than I that it did before, and it calls calls in it calls into question uh, the the validity or the, the the commitment or the sincerity of my of my previous prayer, and then I uh, and 
and uh, and I can and I can look look or or I go through a period of where I where I where I seem to be slipping in my faithfulness to Jesus or just just the patterns of my of the old way of living start coming back and I start to question have I was I ever really saved to begin with was I ever really did it did it really count earlier but what Jesus is saying if if that's you if you can identify with that anxiety if you can identify with that wrestling with your status before Jesus. I want you to take Jesus' words to Peter to heart. What does he say? He says, you are completely clean. If the gospel of Jesus' death in your place has covered you, then no matter what filth or dirtiness or, or, sh- or amount of shame or disgrace that you bring to the table that's been done to you or that you've done to others, no matter what dirt you bring into into the cross, there's nothing that cannot be covered, that cannot be cleansed. All right. So, so don't underestimate the power of his cleansing, and don't let that that uh, don't under don't let that underestimation of his the power of his cleansing ca- distance you from receiving the love of Jesus that's offered you uh, in the cross. All right. So we receive. We, we must receive Jesus' love, but also in receiving Jesus' love, we, we, res- we must respond to Jesus' love. So let's move on. Let's move on to chapter, or to chapter, 12, or chapter 13, verse 12. We'll read the next, uh, next, uh, next section. Uh, and there's two responses to Jesus' love here that, we, that John, I think, wants is laying out for us. So let's pick up reading 12 through 17. Uh, and the first thing we, we see is that we must replicate Jesus' love. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For, you have gi- for I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. That is, there is blessing. The good life comes through replicating the love of Jesus that he, that he is showing us. The good life comes when we resolve to, to do the very best for, for others in the family of faith, just like Jesus has done the very best for us. Now, uh, this brings up a, a question. Is Jesus' command here to wash one another's feet, is that a literal command? Uh, and by that I mean, is, Jesus, what, is what Jesus commanding us to do, um, like actually, literally sit in a circle and, and perform a, a religious act, a religious, uh, a, a religious tradition of, of washing one another's feet with literal uh, water and literal towels? And the answer to that, politically, is yes and no. Yes and no, I think, I think what he's, because there, there's, a, there's, a, there's, lots of, there's lots of church traditions that, that would practice this. We're part of a, a tradition that practices this. We, 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 uh, we wash one another's feet in a, in a literal way as, as, a, as a symbol of our obedient, obedience to Jesus. And I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of good in that. So by yes, I mean this, that Jesus' command uh, to wash one another's feet is, is as we've, we've said, ultimately a command to, uh, is ultimately a pointer to not just the, the, the actual 
act of, of service and uh, of a slave, of, of, of washing one's feet, but it's actually a pointer to the cross and to his, his death. So at the heart of what Jesus is doing is telling us, you, you must be willing to bear one another's burdens. You must, you must pursue sacrificial, humble love for one another. And the actual act, the actual act of doing that, uh, of, 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 of washing one's feet, uh, one another's feet in a circle, in flesh and blood, with literal feet and literal stink and literal towels and literal water, that's an incredibly uh, formative experience. That's a, that's, a, that's a very helpful teaching tool of a symbol to, to, for us to, to put into flesh and blood and body terms what the practical the practicality of what Jesus is, uh, is calling us to do in our lives. So that's why we practice this as a family, and it's as, as a helpful teaching symbol, uh, to, uh, uh, as a helpful teaching symbol to point us to the life of discipleship that Jesus has called us to. But at the same time, what Jesus, Jesus is not here, I don't, I don't think you can, you can, I don't think we should see what Jesus is doing here as instituting a, um, instituting a, um, a, a, a religious activity or religious ritual on the same level as like baptism or communion. Because ultimately what Jesus is doing here is he's pointing us not to an, a religious act, but to a life of sacrifice, a life of obedience. That's the, actually the whole heart. If you look at verse, look at verse back at verse seventeen, he says, uh, "If you know these things, we can, uh, then blessed are you if you actually do them." So the the whole purpose, the, the, the whole thing that Jesus is fighting against is outward religious behavior and and thinking that we can. Um, outwardly assent to the truth of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us without actually embodying that and actually imitating. What Jesus is saying is that the only path available to Jesus' followers is the downward path toward humble service. There's no other way. There's no other way to follow Jesus other than by identifying the humiliating, shameful, disgraced status that Jesus himself identified with. And one, one a helpful way I, I like to think about, okay, how does this show up in my life? How can I actually do this? This, uh, this is not original to me, but I cannot, I never remember where I pick things up, so I don't, uh, I don't know where I got it from. But it's this, is, is, is um, learning to serve like Jesus means, means um, developing the same instincts, the same impulses, the same reflexes that Jesus had. So that, and that means moving toward, moving toward messy people and messy situations. Uh, me- messy people and messy problems. That means, so as, as followers of Jesus, what we're called to do is to develop the reflexes to move toward when we see, when there's a messy person, a messy, dirty, inconvenient, ugly person, our impulse is to be that of Jesus, move toward that person. See, our natural impulse is, is to do what? Like we, we keep our distance, we see them in the grocery store, we, we actually literally like move to the next aisle, right? But Jesus' impulse is move toward, move toward. Identify with the mess. Identify with the lowly. Identify with the inconvenient. Or we see a messy problem. We see a spill in the hallway. Uh, uh, it's very easy to like, oh, act like I, I never, never saw that or whatever. But, but Jesus' Jesus's model is move toward, move toward the mess. Move toward the inconvenience. Move toward, move toward the dirty people and the dirty situations. And... Um, uh, and that's, that's, the, that's the only path available to us as followers of Jesus. The question is, 
If you take that description to your coworkers, to your employer, to your employees, if you take that description to your spouse, to your children, children, if you take that description to your parents, how, how would they respond? Would they, would, they see, would they see continuity between this description of, of Jesus as one who moves towards messy, dirty people uh, in messy, dirty situations, or would, or, or would they see discontinuity? <clears throat> and then lastly, uh, lastly on this point about re- re- replicating Jesus' love, I think there's a, reason, there's a reason that this command, that his command here to, to replicate his love comes after his demonstration of that love through, through the act of foot washing. It's because only by receiving Jesus' love can we replicate that love to others. Now, what I'm not saying is like, you hear a lot of religious people say stuff like, you know, only Christians can really you know how to love people. It's a very self-righteous kind of thing, or you know, only you know, without God in your life, how could you ever be good? Or you know, that's not that's not what I, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying because there's plenty of good atheists and good you know people from from other religions. What I'm saying is this: I want you to picture picture in your head a child, a child, uh, elementary age child. This child is angry. This child is bitter. This child's a bully. This child is just mean, spiteful. Angry child. Maybe you're picturing an actual, an actual individual. Maybe somebody from your own childhood. Uh, maybe if you're an adult that works with kids, you, you kind of have a picture of a, of, a, of, a, of a kid like that in your, in your head. Uh, now I want you to, as you're thinking about this child in your head, I want you to think about his home and, and the, 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 the relationship that he likely, most likely has with his parents the, or, or lack thereof. You see, the, the point of the point of think like what comes to your mind. It's probably not the probably not the greatest home, right? Hurt people, hurt people. Uh, that's the, as the old saying goes. But the, the, the reverse is also true. That loved people love people. Like the only the only way uh, that you and I can ever love, can ever uh, uh, g- genuinely, unconditionally do the best for others in in our in our lives is by internalizing, the only way that we can make that love external is by internalizing what, what God has done, uh, done for us. So that means where does, where does selfishness, bitterness, angry, a lack of love remain in you? <clears throat> Why is it difficult for you to name specific ways that you've humbly, humiliatingly served other people this week? Could it be because there is still areas of your heart that has yet to be exposed to the completely exposing and completely cleansing love of Jesus? Could it be because you have yet to receive Jesus' humiliating service on your behalf and allowed yourself to be lifted to imitation of the love that you have received? Are there areas of your heart that you have not fully laid bare, and fully received the love of Jesus. Allow that love to transform you. Okay, so we respond by replicating, but we also respond by remaining in Jesus' love over the long haul, by remaining in Jesus' love over the long haul. Let's, we're going to read some of these verses of this, this final section of our, of, our, of our passage for this morning. So pick up in verse 18. He says, uh, Jesus says, The scripture must be fulfilled. 
The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. And then there's, there's this whole debate that goes on. They basically ask him, who's going to betray you? Who is this foreboding, you know, this, this person that you keep on mentioning is going to betray you? Who is it? And Jesus replied, skip down to verse 26. Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the dip bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. And after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what, are you, what you were doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him. Since, Jesus kept the, since Judas kept the money bag, some thought Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the festival, or that he should give something to, to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, Judas immediately left, and it was night. Do you, know, do you feel the tone of the conversation change drastically here? It even says that, that concluding phrase, like, and it was night, that is, and dark things were about to happen because, it, because of the darkness. Um, but um, and when Jesus sends Judas away from this meal, we're getting a sober reminder that if we're going to respond to Jesus' love in the right way, we must resolve to remain in Jesus' love over the long haul because that is the opposite of what, because of what, Judas, uh, what Judas does. And there's a couple questions that I want uh, want us to, to to ask about this this passage before we before we uh, apply it to, apply it to us. First, firstly, like, did you notice? There's a lot of like, why the debate about his who he is? Like, if you if if you read that section, there's like they're they're they they have no idea who who Judas is. It's a mystery. Even after G Jesus does this little like you know this symbol where he's handing the morsel of bread to somebody, they still have no idea. It says none of them knew who who it was. So why is that? And that's because Judas, I think what John is trying to help us to see is that Judas was unquestionably close to Jesus. Judas was unquestionably close to Judas. He had hid his disloyalty so well that no one, no one could tell. No one, no one knew. And, um, uh, and uh, he quotes David, a psalm, a psalm of David, Psalm 41.9. When David says, like, the one who eats bread with me is, is raised his heel up against me. And that is what, what Jesus is doing there. Is he's, he's kind of raising the temperature of the room a little bit. He's he, and identifying with, with, with the greatest king of Israel who at multiple points in David's reign was betrayed by close friends and, and, and even family members. And so what, what Jesus is saying is, like, the level of anxiety I'm feeling because of Judas, uh, because of Judas is, the, is like that, that David experienced when the kingdom was crumbling and he had no idea who to trust. Judas was not just some guy to Jesus. He was like a brother, someone who he had, who, whom he had broken bread with uh, and, and formed a bond with. Okay? Uh, so that's why, that's why all this debate about who, who exactly was going to be the one to betray him. Is John is trying to tell us that Judas was very close to Jesus. But then secondly, we have to ask, it, um, you, may, you may have noticed like there's references to Satan and demonic influence in this, in this passage. Uh, and um, that, that's always in, intriguing to me. Uh, and, and one of the questions that it, that it forces me to ask, is Judas morally accountable for his actions if Satan is ultimately behind them. So in verse 2, earlier in the chapters, we were told that Satan himself puts the idea into Judas's heart to do this. Okay, And then verse 27, it says that after G Judas eats bread with Jesus, Satan enters him. So, um, so if, if Satan is indwelling this man, how can we hold him responsible? And should we be worried about being in, indwelled by Satan as well? Now, there's certainly mystery here. 
But I think, uh, but I think in the tension, there's a couple principles to keep in mind. First is that um, Ju- Judas, it, 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 uh, Judas, like all of us, is morally responsible because for, for what he does. Because long before this moment, Judas has determined to betray Jesus. Long before this moment, Judas had become disillusioned by Jesus. If you remember back in chapter 12, uh, the story of, uh, of, of Mary uh, anointing Jesus' feet with, with oil, Judas hates that moment because, because, uh, because he questions it. He says, why isn't this money given to the poor? But then we find out like he doesn't really care about the poor. He wants the money for himself. And when G- Jesus himself doesn't question or doesn't rebuke Mary, like that only solidifies in Judas's heart, like, Jesus is not going to be my path to power and wealth and security like I want him to be. <clears throat> and so, and so he made, Judas made a calculated decision of his own free will to stab Jesus in the back. And we're, we're responsible for our actions, just like Judas is responsible for his actions, because he does what he wants. We always do what we want. And then, but then, at the same time, supernatural demonic forces are clearly at play. Satan does enter him. So, uh, but, but what Satan is doing here is he is merely confirming the trajectory and the direction that Judas was already on of his own, of his own volition. Uh, so, uh, um, so that's why we can say both things are true, that Ju- Judas was at the same time morally responsible and satanically influenced in his betrayal. But there's a third thing that we need to remember is that ultimately the key player in all of this is, not, is neither Judas nor Satan. But God himself is the king who is guiding and, and, sovereignly, uh, and sovereignly orchestrating even this most heinous of acts. Uh, um, when Peter preaches his first sermon after Jesus' resurrection, he talks about this very moment uh, when he's preaching the gospel to the Jews. He says, this man, Jesus, who was handed over, that's the same word as betrayed, who was, who was betrayed by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you executed by nailing him to a cross at the hands of the Gentiles. So, Jesus says, it's not Satan or Judas. That's ultimately why Judas, that, why Judas betrayed Jesus. It's God himself. God determined long ago, and God knew that it was going to happen. Uh, and, and it's, uh, now, there's mystery, and there's tension here. Uh, that, but it's in the tension that there's strength. So if you think of like, uh, you have, when you're trying to, wrestle with God's sovereignty and our responsibility and Satan's role in all of this. You have to, you have to hold things in tension. It's like, but that's good because a rubber band, a limp rubber band is like useless. It's, it's basically trash. It's, it has no power. But when you put tension on a rubber band, there's strength, there's force, there's resolve in it. And it's in the tension of these things, of God's sovereignty and of Judas's responsibility, our responsibility, and, and Satan's influence, that we find, we, that we find the, the place where the Bible wants us to land. And we, we need to grow comfortable with that, uh, with that, with that tension, okay? So it, it means that we should be soberly aware of the devastating places that our sin can take us, because none of us in this room is above Judas. But we also don't need to walk around in fear or anxiety at any moment that Satan could somehow infect us or possess us without our consent, right? Satan did not drag Judas unwillingly into betrayal. All right, so that's how we should think about this this last section. Now, how do we make this theology practical? Well, Judas's disloyalty here is a sober reminder of the pain that we bring to ourselves when we neglect Jesus's love. 
Jesus's, Judas's disloyalty is a sober reminder of the pain that we bring to ourselves when we reject Jesus's love. In a lot of ways, I think what John is doing is he's intentionally contrasting Judas and Peter in this section. Uh, remember, uh, uh, Judas, what drove Judas to betray Jesus is, that the, is the same root desire that, that drove Peter to initially distance himself from Jesus. Judas was repulsed by the idea of identifying with a humiliated master, right? Like, imagine, imagine to find out that the president of the United States or the head of your, the company or organization that you work for, you found out was actually working because of the financial mess that he had got himself into, had to work nights, you know, cleaning sewers or something like that. Like, your, your, rep, your reputation of that person and your estimation of that person would immediately fall, right? Like, who am I, if he can't even have, hold his own finances together and, and hold a, you know, like, who am I to, why should I have to follow this person or why should I, why should I be led by this, by this person? And in the same way, that's, that's what was rolling through Judas's mind. Who wants to fight for a king who is forced to die the death of a slave? And more than this, Judas was repulsed by the idea that he needed to be served, that he himself needed to be served. So he was even lower than the low. Uh, deep down, though, Ju Judas was repulsed by the same gospel that each, enough, each and every one of us in this room is, is tempted to be repulsed by. That our sin is such a problem, that our sin is so dirty, that our failures are so devastating, that the only way to be made right the only path to joy, the only path to life, the only is, is that the holy king of the universe had to take on human poverty and sin and disgrace for you and me. Now, by God's grace, that light switched for Peter somewhere. He was able to receive Christ's love and beg for his cleansing, but the same was not true of Judas. So, as we close, do not... Re receive the love of Jesus. Like, wh what's the antidote to, to, to uh, what's the antidote to, to Judas, the, the, to the pride and idolatry that, that drove G Judas away from Jesus? The antidote is to continued, repeated rehearsal of the love of Jesus that completely cleanses. We're going we're gonna to close right after the sermon with, by singing before the throne of God above. And as we, as we do that, we, we, we sing the gospel, we sing the truth of what has been secured for us, of, of our status before, before God. And we do so rejoicing in that. So this is an invitation. Jesus is an invitation. No matter what you're bringing to Jesus this week, come receive and enjoy and soak in again and again and again the love of God. Only this will ensure that we remain in his love forever. So let me, let me pray for us. Father, you are good to us. And in the simplicity of that word, your goodness to us, we find a depth of love that searches uh, to the depth of our pride that wants to distance ourselves from your love and also searches to the depth of our insecurities that says we could never, we, we could never be cleansed. It could never be enough. There could, there could never be cleansing enough for us. So, Father, would you now, as we rehearse your gospel, would you be pleased? As we rehearse 
of the, of the finished, completed work of Jesus who paid the price we could never pay and then uh, died the death we ourselves deserve to die and then rose again to a newness of life that we should walk in a newness of life. As we rehearse that, would you cause our hearts to, uh, to find joy? Would you, uh, would you, um, would you fight off and, 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 and expel uh, the pride that, that, that is repulsed by, a, by, by the humble gospel that Jesus modeled for us? And would you replace that pride with a joy? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.